Okay, turn to Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah 11. We're getting near the end of Nehemiah. Most of the book of Nehemiah was occupied with the uh, building or the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. That took us through chapter 6, if you recall. A lot of chapters uh, dealing with that subject. We got to chapters 8 through 10, and what did we see? Two words. Saw a spiritual awakening take place in those chapters. Uh, people gathered to hear the word of God, and they heard it, and they responded positively, and they confessed their sins, and they repented. And then in chapter 10, they made a, an agreement, a firm agreement is, is what it says, literally, to other people sign a document, literally, that says, hey, we're going to obey the word of God. We're going to walk in the truth from now on. They were very seriously committed to the word of God. Tonight, we're going to be in chapters 11 and 12, two chapters. Why two chapters? When you see the two chapters, you'll, you'll know why. There's lots of names, and none of them are Bill or Ken or Mike. They're longer names than that. So our, our primary focus tonight is going to be on the repopulation of Jerusalem and the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. Now, I know when I say that, you're very excited to talk about these things. Jerusalem is going to be repopulated, but I think we can benefit from these two chapters. Let's look at what we have here. First of all, the repopulation of Jerusalem, chapter 11. Go to verse 1. Chapter 11, we'll read the first two verses. It says there, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remain in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now, after reading these verses, your first thought is going to be, so what? Who cares about who lived in 5th century B.C. Jerusalem? Does anybody really care about that at all? Well, for one thing, the people who moved there care about it, just like you would care if you left Tampa and moved to another city. Wouldn't you care about that? Wouldn't you want to know about your place of employment in this new town you're moving to? Wouldn't you be interested in where you're going to work? Wouldn't you be interested in your children's schooling? Where are they going to go to school? Is there a school close by? What about the neighborhood we're living in? How's that going to be? What about the crime rate? What about the city ordinances? How is that going to affect us? We would all want to be comfortable with these kind of things. Let me tell you a little bit about the city of Jerusalem. First of all, it was no ordinary city. Look at verse 1. It is called what here? The holy city. The holy city. It means that that city is especially separated under the Lord. Elsewhere, the Bible calls Jerusalem the city of God, even. It calls it Zion. It calls it uh, the city of David. It will be the place where Christ will die and rise again. You know, there are whole psalms that are written. Turn to Psalm 48 for a minute. There are whole psalms written on the significance of Jerusalem. Psalm 48. We'll just read the first couple of verses here. Psalm 48, verse 1, says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion in the, in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. And you read Psalms that have to deal with the city of Jerusalem. It's no ordinary city. It's a holy city. It's the place where the temple was located. Uh, where the priests ministered, where the Levites ministered, where sacrifices were offered, 
where all the action took place as far as worship is concerned. Second Chronicles 6.6, 6, the Lord said, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. City of Jerusalem near and dear to the heart of God. And now it's a place where a secure wall exists. After we read through Nehemiah, it's a place where a wall of security is surrounding the city. Nehemiah and his people had shed blood, sweat, and tears trying to build this wall, put up with a lot of, uh, of uh, venom from the enemies to build this wall. And now they have security. Isn't it? That, uh, that sounds, good, sounds good to a newcomer, right? Coming in, we're going to live in a place that's secure. A lot of people want to move in neighborhoods that are secure. But not only is it an ordin no ordinary city, it's also a relatively empty city at this time. Go back to chapter 7, verse 4. Chapter 7, verse 4. This is after the wall's finished, <clears throat> and Nehemiah sets up guards for the gates of the wall and guys to, a couple of guys to run the show here. And set, chapter 7, verse 4, it says about Jerusalem, Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. A relatively empty city. The great majority of the people are very content to live out in the countryside, as most people are usually content to live. So we could say this is a depopulated city at this time, not many people there. We find in chapter 7, verse 4, the infrastructure not all that great, not many buildings there at the time. I mean, years earlier, Babylon had come through, if you recall, and wiped the city out. They had burnt down the wall, broken down the walls, the wall of Jerusalem, burnt buildings down to the ground. It's in need of rebuilding. The wall is finished, but the city is not. My question is this. What good is a wall of security if no one lives in the city? Why have a wall of security around the city if no one's living? Why even build it? You know, they say if you build it, they will come. You ever heard that? Well, this wall has been built, but nobody is... There, people aren't thronging to get there. They're not thronging to get into Jerusalem. Somewhere I read that a holy city is not much good if it's an empty city, kind of like a ghost town. So it looks like the 5th century B.C. Jerusalem is in need of urban renewals, we would say today, or gentrification is the word people use today to make big cities look better in certain areas that used to look shabby. So maybe Jerusalem is not a, such a great place to live after all. Now, if you look at the wording of chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, looks like it was somewhat of a sacrifice to actually move to Jerusalem. They had to cast lots to see who would live there. Well, that's already an indication there's a problem. I mean, uh, that, that method was used back in the Old Testament and even in Acts chapter 1 to determine the will of God. It's kind of like rolling the dice, we could say today. Depending on your role, you either had to move to Jerusalem or stay put, all based on what appears to be chance. Now, that may seem strange to us. Either you're getting lucky to move to Jerusalem or unlucky to, to, to move there. However, what does Proverbs 16.33 say? It says that when the lot is cast into the lap, the lot, lot could be cast, yet it's every decision is from the Lord, right? It's a, even God has sovereignty over the casting of the lot, what appears to be a chance uh, situation here. He's sovereign over that. So this is a totally unbiased way to choose who's going to move to Jerusalem from where you're living now. Who's going to do that? Nobody would be able to accuse Governor Nehemiah of being unfair. Why did he pick me? I didn't want to go there. I'm very happy where I'm at right now. Nobody could say that. So one-tenth of the population of, of Judah 
the country, the country is called Judah at this time, is going to ha- be required to live in Jerusalem, one-tenth, whereas nine-tenths of the population of Judah is going to live in the country or the villages or the outlying areas of Judah, not in Jerusalem. But look at verse 2. It says, the people blessed those who volunteered. Oh, that's great. I'm sure glad you're volunteering to do that. It's an indication that living there, moving there is going to be a sacrifice, an inconvenience of some kind. It would be easier to stay put where we are, where you are right now. Now, why should that be? Well, think about it. The, the uh, average person had settled down somewhere for some time in some town in Jerusalem, some village somewhere. They're used to living there. They would have to uproot their family to move. You know how in our time, I couldn't even begin to imagine if we moved anywhere because, oh my goodness, the, ma- the, the stuff that we have built, accumulated over the years. I hate to even, I think Jimmy just helped his son move. He called me three times and said, oh no, this is a lot of work. <laughs> it is a lot of work, right? Uprooting your family, having to move. What if he may have had family ties in his village? His job may have affected, he may, his job may be affected by the change. Uh, the city of Jerusalem was still in disarray from Babylon. Buildings had to be built. They had to, uh, to, to live in them. Uh, not a lot of houses there. I've read this. I read this at the terrain around Jerusalem, and you know this from geography anyway, of that area, is less hospitable than in many more other fertile parts of Judah. Plus, there was no special tax break there. You know, I think it used to be, maybe still is, when people used to move to Alaska, I believe, to settle there, they got some kind of a tax break or something like that. There was nothing like that going on here at all. They're going to leave their comfort zone, these people. They're going to leave what they're used to. One commentator wrote this, moving to Jerusalem meant a change of environment, a change of neighbors, a change of friends for the children, and a change of lifestyle. Look at verse 3. It says there, in the cities of Judah, uh, it says, it says there that, that the Judah each lived on his own property. That's secure, security. Now, when you go, now you up, you uproot from there, and you move to Jerusalem. That may be insecurity, even though there's a wall surrounding it. Now, think about this for a minute. What if the powers that be in Hillsborough County uh, sent you a, a letter in the mail, and, and they advised you that, hey, there's a city in Florida that was formerly abandoned. And now we're trying to revitalize that city. You've been chosen to move there. And you have no choice but to go there. You have to go there. And you have to sell your property. You have to give up everything you have. You have to give up everything you know. And all its familiarity, you've got to move. How would you feel about that? That's, that would be a sacrifice, not an easy one to make. But do you know that Nehemiah 11 is in part a fulfillment of prophecy? It doesn't seem like that on the surface, but it is. The fact is that the repopulation of Jerusalem has been planned for years. It's been in the making for years. Now, go back just before Babylon, years before this, came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, basically, and invaded the city, burnt things to the ground, and then they took uh, Judah and Jerusalem into captivity for seven years. Go back to Jeremiah 29 with me. And as we go back there, we're going to hear the voice of Jeremiah say something very interesting about repopulation. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. 
Jeremiah 29.1 says this. This is before the Babylonian captivity. Now these are the letters, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile. You know, Jeremiah's prophesying, Babylon's coming, they're going to take us away to captivity. And so this letter goes to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people, and from Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar at this point had taken the exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the court officials had departed from Jerusalem and so on. Go to verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed from ba- for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to what? This place. Verse 11. For I know the plans. This is everybody's favorite life verse. I know the plans that I have for you. Declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you're going to call upon me and come back and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations, from all the places. They were actually deported to different places. Where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. And we know there's going to be a future fulfillment and other passages about this too. But this is a promise to go back to Jerusalem, Judah, back to Jerusalem. So the Lord foretold this years before that they would be restored to Jerusalem. That began with the decree of Cyrus in chapter 1. We talked about that. And now Jerusalem being filled with people. And God's word, as is, is always is the case, is being fulfilled right before our very eyes. And these people are part of that fulfillment. Now note that the leadership is already living there. Verse 1, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. Uh, and I take, that, I take it when chapter 7, verse 4 says... Only a few live there. He was talking about these leaders. Once again, the leaders are leading the way through personal sacrifice. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me. We've had people talk to us through the years. Some people crave the position of leadership. They want to be the man, right? They want to be up here. Why, I don't know. <laughs> they want to be up here. They want the spotlight on them. They want people to hear what they have to say. And yet, they don't realize the sacrifice that comes along with it. Nor do they care. They don't want that part of it. They just want to be the boss. They want to be the leader. They crave that. But that's, that's not what this is about. You think about, the, I thought about when I saw this, I thought about the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. I thought about Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts 8, 1 says that persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And guess what happened? Everybody was scattered. Samaria, Judah, different places. And, that, and there was nothing wrong with that. Because as a result of that, the word of God was spread to other places and people heard the word of God preached and that's a great thing. But there was one group of people who stayed in Jerusalem to face the music. You know who that was? Acts 8.1, it was the apostles. It says that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. They didn't go. They didn't be persecuted. Everybody's running. Those guys stayed because they led the church and they had to stay there. They were leading at that time. That was sacrifice. And so in Nehemiah's time, the leadership led by example. Now, there were those who were selected or drafted by Lot. They were drafted by the Lord, we could say, through the casting of Lots. They, they apparently complied. There's no record of complaint here at all. They, they apparently comply with this. And uh, if nothing else, they seem to see this as their duty. And then we have the volunteers. Now, some people see the, those who were cast, drafted by Lot as the volunteers. 
I take it that these are, this is the third group of volunteers separate from those who were there by, who got picked by lot. We have volunteers here. It's always great when people volunteer to do the Lord's work or to do what the Lord wants them to do. It's always great when people actually volunteer to sacrifice and inconvenience themselves for the sake of the work of God, right? People like that don't have to be coerced. You don't have to, you know, go after them. They would, they would say, hey, if you need me to do something, I'll do it. If you want me to do something for the Lord, I'll do it. I'm willing to serve the Lord. Whatever it takes, I'll do it. You know what that's called, by the way? That's called self-denial. Self-denial. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Following Jesus may indicate some degree of sacrifice, some degree, whether large or small, of inconvenience. You know, the, 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 the hymn says, talks about coasting, it talks about, coasting on flowery beds of ease to heaven. That's not what we're doing here. That's not happening. These people who were volunteers, they were, and by the way, the word has to do with willingly offered. Literally, it means to willingly offer yourself. And they were willing to do this freely of their own free will to do this for the sake of Christ. Philippians 2 speaks of, Paul speaks of the loyalty and commitment that Timothy has to the work of the ministry. It's a great section in, in Philippians 2 about this. And he says, I have no one else of kindred spirit like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That is the welfare of the Philippian believers. I have nobody else like him. He's willing to sacrifice and inconvenience himself because of you Philippians. And the verse goes on to say, for they all seek after their own interest, not those of Christ Jesus. They all seek after their own. So how many? A lot of people seek after their own interest, he says, not those of Christ Jesus. Timothy's not like that. He's willing to sacrifice and inconvenience himself for the greater good of God's people and for the cause of God's glory. And Judges, Judges 5 has a reference to this as well. It talks about the leaders leading and the people willingly, same word, volunteering or willingly following, willingly giving of themselves to do what God wanted them to do. In Nehemiah's time, some had to sacrifice and they did. You can see the residents are listed here in chapter 11, all these names are listed in the, the people who lived in Jerusalem, listed in verses 3 to 19. Other residents listed in the rest of the chapter and, and, uh, through verse 36. You know, the repopulation of Jerusalem is the last thing the enemies of the people want, of God's people wanted. You remember in chapter 2 when Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem and surveyed the broken down walls and the, the enemies, Sanballat and those guys, said, we don't want the welfare of the Jews. We're not interested in that at all. That's the last thing we want. And yet now you have this city being rebuilt, rebuilt, restored, repopulated. God's redemptive purpose is moving, taking another step forward, all because of sacrifice of God's people. And it happens because they're cooperating with, with God. So we see the repopulation of Jerusalem. Now go to chapter 12. We could go through all those names if you want to. You can read those later. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 26. And here we find the faithful ministers of Jerusalem. We talked about the repopulation of Jerusalem. Now the faithful ministers of Jerusalem in chapter 12, verses 1 to 26. Now, a bunch of names again. We, if you want to, me to, I can read these names. We can try. I was listening. We, I was in a, on, uh, seeing my son in northwest Florida one time. Went to a church that he was attending, trying to, trying to visit. And there was a whole list of names and the, the pastor kept talking about this list of names. Man, i got to read through this list of names, he kept saying. And I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. 
And he talked about that again. And he, finally, he read through the list of names. He got through and everybody clapped. And uh, he didn't make it a, a point at all about any of it. He just wanted to read through the list of names. So if you want me to do that, we can do that. But I don't think you probably do. What we have in chapter 12, verses 1 to 26, are several generations of priests and Levites, two of which, I'm summarizing this for you, two of which are highlighted. Two in particular are highlighted. Highlighted, rather. There is a first generation, and there is a second generation, okay? The first generation is represented by the high priest, Jeshua. Look at verse 7. Now, he comes with, in verse 1, he comes up with Zerubbabel. Remember, Zerubbabel came up. You try to say that word five times in a row. Came up uh, from Persia and brought people with him. Among those were Jeshua in verse 1. And then in verse 7, look at the last phrase. In the days of Jeshua, we're talking about Jeshua the high priest, who is the first generation being talked about here. And there's a second generation. You go to verse 10. Jeshua became the father of Joachim. He's the second generation. He becomes a high priest in the second generation. And you have all these lists of people, okay? Uh, now, without going into detail about all these names, just get the picture. First generation, second generation of priests and Levites, basically. What's the significance of these first 26 verses? Why go to all the trouble to list all these names, all these generations? And I'll tell you why. It shows us the faithfulness of the priesthood throughout this difficult time all these years. From the time that the guys first arrived in Jerusalem from Persia and Ezra until Nehemiah's time, it talks about that the, the, the priesthood was faithful in all this time. Now, this is amazing for Israel, given Israel's history. And I believe that we can draw two conclusions from the list of names from the first and the second generation to return to the land. Number one. We need to remember our spiritual heritage. That's the first thing. The spiritual influence left behind by the first generation is memorialized forever in Scripture by these names. In the first nine verses or so of uh, chapter 12, the first generation, you have all these names listed of Jeshua and all the guys that came with them. And then you have the second generation to serve as priests and Levites. And guess what? That did not happen by accident. These guys didn't just start serving the Lord. A godly standard was first set by their ancestors. Guys like Jeshua, they set the standard for other guys to follow in their, in their wake. What kind of a guy was Jeshua, the high priest, first generation? Well, Ezra chapter 3 says he was supporting the work of the building of the temple. Remember they built the foundation of the temple at the beginning of Ezra? He was there helping. He was there supporting that work and pushing forward that work. Ezra 4, Jeshua was among those who refused to compromise with the work of God. The enemies came. They said, hey, let's build with you. And Jeshua says, no way. You have no, no, way. You have no uh, interest in this or a right to do this. He didn't, he didn't compromise with the ungodly. That's the kind of guy Jeshua was. He wants to exalt the Lord. He's always exalting the Lord. He's always working for the Lord. He's interested in God and his work. And then the son of Jesh Jeshua was Joachim, who was high priest over the second generation. He comes along. Now, without the influence of guys like Jeshua, the second generation would have had no guiding light, nothing to follow at all, nobody to light their way, none of that. We must never forget people that God used in our life who went before us. Who went before us, we can't forget that's our spiritual heritage. We must never forget them. They went before us and they influenced us with the gospel and with the word of God. The people of faith, you think about the people of faith in Hebrews 11, they're an example of the godly heritage that we have in Christ. They're the witness 
witnesses of God's faithfulness, as you read that list, these are our spiritual heritage. It's only by the grace of God, think about this, only by the grace of God that God used somebody in each one of our lives, or several somebodies, to influence us with the word of God and with the gospel. Think about that. Think back to yourself. Whom did the Lord use in my life to influence me with the gospel? Who was it? Think about that person. Think about those people. Who did this? Who gave me the message of salvation? Whom did the Lord use in my life to disciple me, to help me to grow in grace? Who was it? Who were they? Who were those people? Thank God for those people. Don't forget those people. They pointed you to Christ even as the Lord brought about his work of salvation in you. They're the ones that led the way for you. We need to remember our spiritual heritage. And then secondly, we need to, re to re exercise our responsibility to the next generation. We have a responsibility to the next generation. You see, now, not all the priests, these, this is a list of godly priests and Levites in chapter 12. Not all the priests and Levites in the Old Testament were godly. Some of them were like godless pagans. They wore the priestly garments. They went through the religious motions, but they were all but pagans. An example would be the sons of Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel 2, Eli had sons who grew up, got into priesthood. They were evil men. Why? Because Eli, the father, dropped the baton. Let me explain. How many of you have ever been in a relay race where you've had to pass a baton? And track and field. I had to do that years ago. I didn't have to do it. I wanted to do it. And I remember we practiced passing the baton to the next runner. Now, the, when, when a runner uh, is getting the baton, he's got his hand back. He receives the baton. He runs as fast as he can. And then as, as he gets to the next runner, that guy's got to start taking off in advance. So by the time he gets to him, he's running full speed. And you slap that baton in his hand, which is in back of him, and he takes off and goes from there. And we practice that baton pass. Because if you drop the baton, you lose valuable time, you get disqualified, you lose the race. I've seen Olympic runners drop the baton, which I was absolutely amazed that that happened. Well, I tell you what, Eli was given the responsibility of passing the baton to the next generation. He dropped it, he fumbled the baton. Why do I say that? Because the Bible says, he neglected to do his fatherly duty of restraining his sons from wickedness. It says his sons did wickedness, and he did not restrain them. And God puts it on him. The Lord placed the blame on him for allowing his sons to continue in the priesthood without discipline. Now, it's true that ultimately a child answers for himself. We all know this. You, you can have the, the godliest parents in the universe, and a child can still rebel. They could be the most caring and loving parents, giving them the gospel, Setting the example, they can still rebel against God. We know this can happen. And we know it takes God and his grace to subdue a sinner's heart. We know that as well, right? But in Eli's case, the Lord blame, lays the blame squarely at his feet, and the race is lost in his case. I'm speaking now of the responsibility that we have to the next generation. We've got to keep this in our minds. You say, well, I, you know, parents, grandparents too. There's grandparents in this room. We have a responsibility as well to help out in this. We need to pray for the children of our church, the next generation. We need to pray for their parents as well. You say, I don't have any kids yet. You will probably one day. If I was you, I'd start praying for them right now. Pray that the children will be raised to know the Lord and to follow the Lord. Pray that the parents will set the example. This is an awesome responsibility we have. Psalm 145, verse 4 says this, 
One generation shall praise your works to who? To another. Preferably the next generation. And shall declare your mighty acts to that generation. That's what we're to do. Our desire should be for the next generation that's coming up, even here in this church, to know the Lord, to know his person, to know his works, to know his glory, to know his salvation. Just like in Nehemiah chapter 12, these guys set the example. And so you have, you have these godly priests in Jerusalem. And then finally, notice the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. The dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. Go to chapter 12, verse 27, through the end of the chapter. Let me read verses 27 to 30. Now, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem, from the villages and the, and the Tophethites, from Beth Gilgal, and from their fields in Geba, and Asmabeth, for the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Well, after all this time, finally time to dedicate the wall, that wall was finished in chapter 6. Remember that? Chapter 6, verse 15 says, so the wall was completed in 52 days. But it wasn't dedicated right away. Apparently, there was other pressing issues that took the priority. But now it's dedicated in chapter 12. What did this dedication involve? Kind of looks like a church service in a way. Verse 30, it involved purification. Purification. The priests, the Levites purified themselves. The people are purified. The wall is purified. Now, we're not given details on how that happened. But we know the Levites had ritual purification they always had to go through to get cleansed in the Old Testament. And uh, they did that. But the real emphasis here is on holiness. That's why it says this. In the New Testament, strict regulations regarding cleansings and sacrifices and all this, that's done away in Christ. We know that. But the theme of holiness is prominent in both Testaments, Old and New Testaments. This necessary element is that God's people are set apart for the Lord. It's interesting to me that the command, the command first stated in Leviticus of all places, Leviticus 11.44, says, For I am the Lord your God, be holy, for I am holy. That same command is repeated where? For example, 1 Peter 1, right? 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, like, says, Like the one who called you holy, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, Leviticus eleven forty four, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Again, purity does not involve the outward cleansing these days, or in the New Testament, outward ritual cleansing doesn't involve that. But holiness is still our calling, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, after following a passage about the Old Testament, says this, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So we play a role in a holy life. We play a role. God says it's on you. Of course, he is, he is enabling us to do this, but it's on us as well. We're responsible for the Lord for personal holiness. And that is based on the work of Christ, who made us a new creation in himself. I love 1 Corinthians 1.30. It says, listen to this, but by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ became to us sanctification. Our holiness is grounded in Christ. 
Purity and holiness did not begin and end in the Old Testament. It continues in the New Testament all the way to today. Even though the ritual cleansings of the Old Testament are not included, nevertheless, God calls us to be holy. So we have holiness as an element of this celebration, this dedication. Secondly, we have music in this chapter. That's a general term I'm using to describe various aspects of music. In this chapter, you're going to see uh, hymns, songs, instruments, choirs. First of all, singing. Verse 27 talks about hymns and songs. Uh, Verse 28, look at verse 28. Mentioned singers, the sons of the singers were assembled. Go to verse 46. Verse 46 says, from the days of David and Asaph, in ancient times, they were were leaders of the singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. So you have songs of praise, hymns of thanksgiving. Now, typically, celebrations of any kind involve music, right? There's always music involved. And if you ask people, what kind of music do you like? They're going to say rock or country or rap or something like that. But we're not talking about music for music's sake. We're talking about songs of praise here. These songs have a purpose. Not to entertain us, but to give praise to God. That's what they're doing here. You know, singing has always had a place. Singing has always had a place in the worship of God's people. All the way from the beginning, all the way to this day and age, Exodus 15, for example. Moses and Israel have a song they sing about the Lord's victory in the the Red Sea. Exodus 15, you can read that. Deuteronomy 32, Moses again writes a song about where he exalts the Lord. Judges 5, another song about Lord's victory in that time over his enemies. There's even an entire book that was written to be Israel's hymn book, and that was the book of Psalms, right? You see it all through. We're going to see in a minute how that continues in the New Testament. So it's only appropriate at the dedication of the wall that the Lord's going to be worshipped in song, since it was because of his help the wall was finished. So they sing unto him. And then there's instruments involved. Verse 27 talks about instruments like cymbals, harps, lyres. The lyres are not people. They're instruments. The Psalms often speak of musical instruments to be used in praise, like Psalm 98. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the trumpets, and the sound of the horn. And you see that again and again. Psalm 150, you see it. Now, some in church history, this is very strange to me, have refused to use instruments in the church. Oh, we're not going to do that. That's worldly. And yet, they have no scriptural warrant for it because you you see it, (laughs) instruments are used. And God says, praise him with all the instruments. It's part of worship. And they do that here. And there's choirs. Look at verse 31. It says, then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, the finished wall, and I appointed two great choirs. The first goes to the right, basically. Uh, The second... Down in verse 30, look at verse 38, the second choir proceeded to the left. And so they're on top of the wall, okay? Now the wall was discovered, the archaeologists discovered this wall was about nine feet thick. So they have plenty of room to walk, they're not going to fall off the wall, to to walk on the wall. And and they have these two choirs who are singing. Verse 46 again hints to the fact that David David had established singers and choirs uh, to play instruments and sing praises to the Lord. Why? Because David was a man of God, after God's own heart, right? And he Love to worship the Lord. You'll see that in the Psalms. So he established choirs <clears throat> for this reason. And as I said, music like this that glorifies God, not only in Old Testament practice, but in New Testament one as well. You see that in Ephesians chapter 5.18. What does Ephesians 5.18 says? It says to speak, speaking to your... Now listen to what it says carefully. 
Speaking to one another in psalms, this is after it talks about being filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, <clears throat> singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. Acts 16, Paul and Silas are singing praises to God at midnight and the prisoners are listening to them. Did you notice in each one of these cases what's happening? People are being edified by these songs and hymns and spiritual songs. They're in an environment, they're, they are in an environment of singing hymns of praise. We're teaching and admonishing one another with these songs. I, this morning, how can you sit here and listen to this service in the morning without, even I feel something in my heart, the Iceman. I feel something in my heart as I'm listening to this. Now, Mike expressed it out loud. Inwardly, I expressed it too, Mike, believe it or not. I think a hand went up inside me, a praise. I tried to hold it back to maintain my reputation as the ice man here, but I'll tell you something, though. I feel something, and when I, I tell you what, that song you sang tonight, uh, Kyle recommended, uh, what was the song? All Creatures of Our God, and I love that song. And, I, and I, you hear those songs, Mike this morning reacted to one. I'm like, wow, can we do this again? I've thought the same thing many times. It's so great because why? We're being edified, right? We're listening to these songs of praise. We know God's being glorified. People are being edified. And that's what's happening. Music plays a vital role and even all the way to this day in the church. That's why, very important, people don't understand this. That's why we make such a big deal out of our music being based on sound doctrine, right? Number one. And secondly, that it glorifies the Lord. And thirdly, that it edifies the saints, that's what it's all about. We're not interested in a show. We're interested in giving praise to God and worship and to spiritually profit the people. And so they had choirs. They had Thanksgiving also. Thanksgiving. Verse 27 talks about hymns of Thanksgiving again. Verse 46 says they were hymns of Thanksgiving to God. It specifies that. The focus is not on the people's achievement in building the wall but on worshiping God. Without him, there would be no wall. Do you know what it says in Nehemiah 6.16? This work, this wall, had been accomplished with the help of our God, it says. Remember we talked about that? It had been accomplished with the help of our God, and so they want to give him thanks. That's another important element of worship thanksgiving. The New Testament is full of exhortations again. You see it all over the place, even sometimes out of nowhere. Paul's talking about a subject, and he says, oh, by the way, give thanks. Just kind of throws it out there. Ephesians 5.20, following after Ephesians 18, about singing, Ephesians 5.20 says, always giving thanks. Following, let the word of Christ dwell you richly in Colossians, Colossians 3.17 says, giving thanks. And you see it again and again. This is what we do. We are, we're to be people of thanksgiving because we realize that all we have comes from God. All we do is enabled by God. He's the one that gets the thanks. And then finally, joy in verse 43. Now look at verse 43. Joy is another element in worship here. Very interesting verse, verse 43. On that day, they offered... Now notice the times it says rejoice or joy here. On that day, they offered great sacrifices and they rejoiced because God had given them great what? Joy. Even the women and children... Even the women and children rejoiced? Everybody's happy. So the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Actually, the words joy and rejoice are used five times in the Hebrew, not four. 
Five times. And of course, it's the word Samic, right? Which is our last name here. It actually is the word Samic. Uh, and it's from the same root word every time. There's such great joy that the sound of their joy can be heard from far away. People in distance, distant places, maybe even, I don't know, maybe enemies heard this sound. Great joy. What a contrast to the earlier discouragement and the fear the people felt. These very same people felt while they were building the wall. Remember the enemies were after them? They experienced discouragement and fear. That's over with now. Now they have joy. It's not the fleeting kind of joy the world knows. Why why do I say that? It's God-given joy. Notice the verse again. God had given them great joy. Who gave it to them? God did, right? That's the real deal. It's not manufactured. It's not the product of human engineering. This is joy that comes from God. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is, among other things, joy. Joy of the Lord, right? True joy comes from the Lord. What did Nehemiah tell the people in chapter 8? He said, do not be grieved because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. You may weep at times. I've seen people in this auditorium weep at times. But joy, God gives the joy. God can give the joy. So the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem presents a true picture of worship. Worship involves singing to the Lord. That would be good to do on a personal basis even. It involves giving thanks to the Lord. I heard Erwin Luther one time say he developed a practice. He used to pastor Moody uh, Memorial Church in Chicago. He said he used to he developed a practice one time in his life where he just spent, I think, 45 minutes every day just giving God thanks. I thought, yeah, that's a life changer, no doubt. Worship includes giving thanks to him. It means to rejoice in him. When we worship in spirit and truth, God is glorified and people are edified, right? They're edified. This is worship. That's true worship. Worship that is acceptable to the Lord. We'll close it here, but next week we will close out the whole book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13. Let's go ahead and Lord prayer at this time. Father, we're grateful again for your word. We pray that we will be people who are like the people in Nehemiah, committed to the word, and people who, as a result of this, uh, repent, confess, and worship you in these different ways, singing, being thankful, uh, edifying one another, Lord, helps to do this so that the people may be edified, so that sinners will be saved, so that God will be glorified. And we just pray this in Christ's name. Amen.